Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, listeners. Over the past two episodes, I've covered so much on reincarnation. Talking about general reincarnation stories, the specifics around reincarnation, history and origins, plus the scientific research conducted by Dr. Ian Stevenson. And I have been quite selective in the content that I've covered, because this space is huge. But I feel I've covered some critical parts or understandings in reincarnation. Now I'm going to bring you two cases that I feel stand out amongst the rest. One of which was my very first encounter years ago with the idea of reincarnation. So I am stoked to get to talk to you about this. And that case stuck with me for years. So grab yourself a hot tea or in my case, some milk with maple syrup, courtesy of Canada, oh yeah, snuggle up somewhere comfortable and join me for something different. The case of Barbara Carlin. And to understand her story, we need to know about another story. The story about Anne Frank. She was born on the 12th of June, 1929, and passed away in 1945. She was a German-born diarist, one of the most discussed Jewish victims of the Holocaust. She was exceptionally young and a talented writer who wrote in her diary from 1942 to 1944, where she heard from German occupation in World War II. Anne Frank left a legacy in her death, with charities being established in her honor. And with this legacy was her diary that accounted in detail the experiences, trials and obstacles, relationships and life experiences during World War II. It was her documentation in her diary that provided insights and testimony to the horrors of World War II. So what does this have to do with reincarnation? Enter Barbara Carlin. Barbara was born in 1954 in Gothenburg, Sweden, a whole country away. And as a child, she began writing small stories at first and then moved on to full stories in her diaries. In her later years, she would have 11 books published and has always had a passion for writing a passion both Barbara Carlin and Anne Frank were exceptionally good at. But what's the tie-in between these two? Well, it's not just the writing. I'll explain. Ever since Barbara was a little girl, she had terrible nightmares, terrifying dreams, vivid and intense, enough to have her shaking with fear. At the age of two, she approached her parents and said to them, I'm not Barbara, I'm Anne Frank. Her mum and dad laughed it off, thinking this was some kind of joke, a child's game. But Barbara was serious. She insisted it wasn't some kind of joke or fantasy, and pleaded with them as best as a two-year-old could, of course, for them to listen to her, to pay attention to what she's saying. But of course, as expected, her parents sent her back to sleep. For years, she slept like this, having nightmare after nightmare. Those detailed dreams, those past experiences, and grew more and more into the persona of Anne Frank. It was difficult for her to walk the line of both lives, 
living as Barbara as her parents insisted, and being Anne Frank. Over the years, both those identities merged, and as those years went on and on, and she reached the age of six, she claimed that her parents, the ones she lived with at the time, were not, in fact, her real parents, and that her father was going to come claim her. These claims from Barbara were seriously freaking out her parents. I can imagine. If I had a child and that child came up to me and said, Dad, I'm Morgan Freeman. Seriously, you're not my father. I've come back and I'm here to narrate. And I have the freckles to prove it. I'd start questioning his sanity for sure. And that's exactly what Barbara's parents did. Not the Morgan Freeman part. They in fact thought that their daughter was losing her mind. And they took her to see a psychiatrist as a result. So what would you do if you had these dreams with specific details? Nightmares even of past events that you can't explain. That bring on emotions and feelings or even senses like smell. To a point where your reality feels, well, not your own. Then you're taken to a psychiatrist with the view that no one believes you. Do you share your stories then? Do you double down and insist that they are the crazy ones? Well, with the fear of being put away all too real, Barbara did not share her stories. She refused to, doing all she could to deflect and mislead the questions asked of her. So as time passed and she became more introverted, she began to write. She would write down her experiences, but quickly dispose of them, for fear of being found out, and again thought there was a possibility of being taken away. But during this writing process, she was able to vent, to get her thoughts on paper, and artistically express her feelings. So, when did Barbara demonstrate her knowledge regarding Anne Frank? Taking a trip to Europe, and eventually Amsterdam, right where Anne Frank's house was. During the trip, her parents were hailing taxis to come pick them up, in order to take them to Anne Frank's house, just as a tourist event. At this point, she said quietly, let me show you the way, proceeding to guide them on foot straight to the house. And as she did so, she commented on how they changed the steps outside. This is a child that's never been here, and at that age would not know where Anne Frank's house is, let alone be able to navigate to that location, all the while running straight up those stairs and into the house. She reached Anne Frank's room. Standing there, she said that she could see the pictures. They were still there, hanging up on the wall. But they weren't though. There were no pictures on that wall, and her mother explained this to her. Still, Barbara didn't give in. She pleaded, can you not see them? Can you not see the pictures of my family, what I loved up on that wall? Her mother began to wonder and she approached one of the guides of the Anne Frank house. These guides would attend to Anne Frank's room, look after it and ensure no damage was done to it. And he stated that there was indeed pictures there. Was being the active word here. They had to remove those pictures. Why? Because tourists kept stealing and damaging them. But there was indeed pictures there previously. In fact, due to the tourists doing damage, they were in the process of framing them. It was then that her mother realized that this was the real deal. 
The father was skeptical, and I believe skeptical the entire way, saying that he would give this situation an exception, but nonetheless believed his daughter. Fast forward though, after this incident, she began seeing success in the writing space, publishing her poetry book, Man on Earth, one of the best-selling books in Sweden at the time. It was during her adolescence that this took place. That's when the memories faded and slipped away. It was only in her 40s that the memories of Anne Frank came flooding back, during a traumatic experience with a mounted police officer that she claimed was the reincarnated spirit of a Nazi officer. Now, there's not too much information around the encounter, other than scaring the bejeebus out of her, prompting her to recall more memories. And is one of the main reasons that she wrote her next book. She called it, And the Wolves Howled. This book and the press around it, in which she claimed that she was the reincarnation of Anne Frank, led to her meeting Buddy, Anne Frank's last living relative. They got to meet, and they fell into each other's arms and cried. The thing is, this meeting was organized by her publisher, who only realized the information that Buddy was a fan. That was all. Buddy was the last relative of Anne Frank, and Barbara had that reaction with Buddy minutes within meeting him. With Buddy himself making Barbara an honorary member of the Anne Frank Foundation. Due to all the knowledge and experiences that Barbara was able to relay to Buddy, Buddy himself was convinced that she was indeed Anne Frank in her past life. The inside knowledge, the dreams, the writing, and knowing the path to Anne Frank's house in an unknown land, plus the pictures on the wall. How would Barbara at a very, very young age know any of this? And it was during this young age, between two and six, that her memories of Anne Frank were the strongest, which actually does align with Dr. Ian Stevenson's research about reincarnation. The children's memories of past lives begin to fade after the age of seven. And in this story, that's exactly what happens. Barbara, moving into her adolescence, saw her memories begin to fade. And only a shock to that memory brought Anne Frank's past lives back. Such an interesting series of events. I mean, even if her parents knew who Anne Frank was, the absorption of that knowledge, who she was, the house, the photos, her self-identification at that age. It's difficult to believe that a child around that age, two at the time, was able to absorb all that information. Absolutely fascinating. And our next case is Cameron McCauley, the Scottish boy who came back. This is the very first story that I ever heard regarding reincarnation many, many years ago. Cameron McCauley, born in Glasgow, Scotland to Mother Norma, began first being able to talk at the age of two. It was then, being only two years old, that he told his family about his previous life on the island of Barra. Barra is a 58-square-kilometer island, with about 1,000 people living on it to the west coast of Scotland. Now, as Cameron became older, he began having dreams, and would talk to his mum about a white house that overlooked the sea and the beach area where he said he used to live. Cameron then mentions something out of the ordinary. I mean, that is out of the ordinary in itself. He begins talking about airplanes. Airplanes that used to land on the beach, whilst recounting his love for a black and white dog 
and owning a black car whilst living on Barra. Now remember, this is a two-year-old giving a full explanation and articulating these thoughts one after the other. Be it real or fake, it is impressive that Cameron has that kind of imagination at his age. His family though would have been 200 miles away from where Barra was, the place in which Cameron claimed to have lived in his dreams. He talked about the location, his past family, and how his past dad on Barra was called Shane Robertson, who died being hit by a car. Cameron's words in describing his past life's father's incident were, he didn't look both ways. Not only would Cameron talk about his life on Barra, but also spent time drawing his Barra house. A long white building standing on the beach, reminiscent of a long house, quite wide, with a brown roof. Even stranger is how Cameron could know any of these details because they didn't even own a computer. He had never heard of Barra before, or even the area around him. In regards to at least communication-wise, no one's gone and told him what Barra is or was. He's just going off pure intuition. So how was Cameron getting this information? It's something that no one really knew. It's absolutely puzzling. And over time, he would talk more about Barra, more about his past family, and more about his past life, leading to what I discussed in the previous episodes about past life mourning. Cameron began to grieve and mourn over leaving his past life mother. He would explain how his Barra mother would read the Bible to him, had long brown hair, and would recite passages for him on the beach as a child. He began crying, wanting to see her, and wanting to know she was okay. And word began to spread. Cameron Macaulay, the Scottish boy with past lives. It began to spread and grow during 2006, and his mother reached out to October Films, who stepped in with a crew assembled from London to bring Cameron to Barra to film a documentary about his past life experience. October Films also brought with them Dr. Jim Tucker, a child psychologist, with the intention of documenting and understanding this phenomena. One interesting point that Dr. Jim Tucker made was that Cameron described these as memories, with experiences being extremely tangible, places that he could go to, that he could visit, essentially a type of vision. Whereas Dr. Jim Tucker, who had worked with a lot of kids in this area, explained that most kids do eventually admit that the story is imaginary and are unable to be concise with their details. This was a unique case, as it was quite the opposite. When Cameron was told that he was going to Barrow though, he began jumping around, shouting that he was going home and excited to return to his past life location. So now we have the story. Where's the physical evidence? Well, after arriving and contacting the Heritage Center to find the house that Cameron was talking about, they couldn't find it. They couldn't find the records either. There was no family house overlooking the beach on the side that they thought they were on. But it wasn't the Heritage Center that called them to point out that there was a mistake in their destination. It was their own hotel that called them to explain that the house they were looking for, the Robertson's family house, was on the other side of the island. They were driving in the other direction. Talk about having your emotions on a yo-yo. Up and down, up and down, goodness. Now during all of this, Cameron had no idea where they were going. He was just resting in the back of the car. They stopped the vehicle near the house and opened the door. 
He gets up, hops out, and runs through the house screaming, My house, my house, I'm back! Cameron knew exactly where he was, without even a prompt, and at that point, he motioned to the crew and the family, pointed straight to the house, and showed him all the rooms that he lived in, and even a secret garden entrance on the location. He even showed them the three toilets in the house exactly where they were. And before even starting this trip, Cameron would constantly mention three toilets in his current house, comparing them to the three toilets that he had in his past life house. Now, for some even higher strangeness, they found a relative of the Robertsons, Gillian Robertson, living in Stirling, a town in Scotland, the last member of the Robertson family. But apparently, she couldn't recollect anyone by the name of Shane Robertson, but could attest to the fact that they did own a black and white dog with a black car that Cameron had seen in his dreams. It's strange, of all the things that Cameron had correct, there was this little blip, this anomaly in his details. But of all the information that he mentioned, that was the only incorrect piece. There's weight in the story still for sure as a result, right? Well, interestingly enough, even though he was incorrect about the name, stating Shane regarding his father, Gillian mentioned that she did have an uncle called James, and this might be a stretch, but James and Shane were interchangeable Celtic names for one another at the time. My assumption here is regarding the dreams and visions or thoughts that Cameron had of his past life, it's kind of like living in the dream. So when you're dreaming, you can remember them, but pieces are lost and then sometimes remembered. What Cameron could have experienced might have been a mishmash of dreams and past life experiences crossing over themselves. Just something to think about in relation to this case. I was also asked in regards to reincarnation, what I thought it would be like when the children with past lives lose their memories. I think the best example I can give you would be having a nice sleep, having a dream, waking up and trying to explain that dream to a friend. There are bits of the dream that you just can't remember, but you know it's important. And some parts of the dream seem to be easy to recall while other parts seem extremely difficult. I think it's a lot like that. Children with past lives have these dreamlike memories that seem to fade over time and eventually into nothingness. That's the best example that I can think of right now. The feeling or process of forgetting your past lives and only an assumption of mine. Also, during my research, I found something really fascinating as well regarding reincarnation that Cameron voiced during his interviews and dialogues with interviewers. Cameron was talking to one of his friends when he was a bit older and he said, don't worry about dying, you just come back again. And when Norma his mum first asked how he came back, he said, I fell through and went into your tummy. Two interesting answers straight from the horse's mouth. And if you recall, in the very first episode about reincarnation, some of the examples that I give at the end of the episode discusses in particular the concept of portals. Just so I'm really clear, when I mean portals, you could probably think of it as an open or closed door. Or for any sci-fi lovers out there, Stargate. When that portal opens, you can pass through and step into another world. What Cameron was describing is exactly just that. 
He peered into the portal and slipped or fell in and entered our world. And as expected, Cameron's memories of his past life began to fade as he became older. But ever since then, his memories and accounts remain up there on the internet for people like me and you to look at and discuss with each other. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'm so happy that I could share two cases that really had me thinking and scratching my head. And what about you? Are you just that bit closer to believing in reincarnation? Or is the information I presented or the stories you've heard just missing some crucial parts of reliable data that you're looking for? And of course, it's totally understandable for people out there to be skeptical still. There may be large chunks of data missing or a over-reliance on he said, she said, but there are parts of the story that do have witnesses to support that this happened. So accounts of children like Cameron knowing the look and some key aspects of who lived in a location where he never could have been, or Barbara knowing exactly where Anne Frank's house was and that there were pictures on the wall, or at least supposed to be, which were now being treated and protected. It's unexplainable and astonishing. Have these stories and what I've talked about in the past episodes surprised you? Raised some unique questions of your own? Let me know what you think. Email me at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com or leave your thoughts in the comments below. Also, before I go, next week I'll be doing Japanese folk stories and some listener stories as well, so stick with me then. And for all my YouTube fans out there, if you want to get my latest episodes on YouTube, click that little bell icon under the video itself. That way, whenever I upload a video, you get a non-intrusive notification that a new episode from me is up and ready to watch. Nice and easy. You know me by now, I'm always trying to make it easier to leave reviews and get in touch with me. So have a fantastic weekend, you lovely people. Stay safe, keep creepy, and as always, till next time. time.